1: I'm Kyle Meredith, and I host an interview series called Kyle Meredith With, where I talk to legendary musicians, up-and-coming artists, and whatever that is in between. I dive deep into the making of new albums, stories behind songs, but also things like how is Moby connected with the CIA, and did the Decemberists really thank Robert Mueller in their liner notes, and seeing which band I can get to reunite. Will it be Zeppelin, Genesis, Roxy Music, or Pavement? You've got to listen to find out. It's Kyle Meredith with from WFPK Independent Louisville and the Consequence Podcast Network.
2: Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Willow Watch, a podcast dedicated to the 1988 Lucasfilm fantasy epic Willow, in which breaking news comes in all sizes. An obsessive fandom is the greatest magic of all. Willow Watch is a special presentation of State of the Empire, Consequence of Sound's Lucasfilm podcast, where we look for news in Alderaan places. Most of the time, we're talking about Star Wars, but in this episode, we're ditching the galaxy far, far away to go beyond
1: good. Beyond evil. Beyond your wildest imagination.
2: Because this is Willow's 30th anniversary. <laughs> Hi, I'm Cap.
0: Hey, I'm Doug. Hey, I'm Matt.
2: On our main show, State of the Empire, we often have Willow Watch segments digging deeper into the world of Willow than any
0: Nelwyn would dare. But 2018 is Willow's 30th anniversary, so we're celebrating with full-length Willow Watch specials, giving overdue appreciation for George Lucas, Ron Howard, and Bob Dolman's fantastic and beloved film.
1: In these episodes, we explore Willow's history, the people who made it, the world it takes place in, the media tie-ins, the expanded universe, and even what might come next there's real talk of a Willow sequel happening.
2: In the last episode, we shared surprising facts about the film's production and little-known lore from beyond the film in the novelization by Waylon Drew, as well as Alan Vardy and Greg Kostikian's Willow sourcebook.
0: Yeah, that's a real uh, forget-all-you-know-or-think-you-know situation. I mean, you get all those extra tidbits and expanded things. Like in the sourcebook, for example, we get the backstory of why is Mad Morgan in the crow cage? Where did Sorsha come from? Who's her dad? What's the relationship with Beth Morda? Is she literally the daughter or is she like an adoptive daughter? Where did Beth Morda even come from? How, why was she such an evil bitch? <laughs> like, yeah, and we only scratched the surface of
2: discussing those particular topics in the last episode because the source book is so expansive in wh- particular. Why is
0: Burgle cut so important to the No One village? Who is he? <laughs> What's his job? We know this now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, we know this now. We yes. haven't had a chance to share that yet. There's, oh, a- yes, there's, yes, yes. there's so much to talk about with the source book.
1: But we weren't going to get into that just yet. In this episode, we were going to explore the Willow merchandise and the media it's influenced. But something really important came up. Cap, you made a discovery recently. Actually, a couple discoveries.
2: Yeah. You know... We might be talking about Willow, but it's starting to feel like Indiana Jones, the way we keep unearthing (laughs) priceless artifacts. Um, (laughs) In this case, I found a second novelization of the movie, a completely different adaptation, and that kicked off a chain of events that led me to an actual Willow script. And not just any script, but specifically the draft that was used to secure financing for the film. (laughs) It's a pretty surprising and crazy little journey, and so we're going to take you with us. Both of these things, the script and the southern novelization, shed light on the way the film's story evolved and are filled with fascinating roads not taken. So in this episode, we're sharing with you our favorite
0: finds from both of them. And speaking of the screenplay, if any of our listeners haven't heard our interview with the film screenwriter Bob Dolman, you really need to do that now. Yes yeah, that's, that's <laughs> Willow Watch episode one. Yes. If you combine that with all the Expanded Universe stuff that we've talked about last episode, you're going to have a really good basis for all the layers of the deleted scenes, divergent stories, and the crazy things that have got us up to this point. Right. So
2: here's what happened. I've had some pretty good success hopping on eBay and finding some unusual Willow stuff we didn't know existed. Mm-hmm. Some of it's kind of useless, like weird quote-unquote magic tricks that you could get from a, uh, a cereal box the sticker books yeah i typed in the search terms willow lucasfilm rare and i found what was listed as the willow uk novelization mm-hmm. and this is not just a different printing of the Whalen drew novel it was actually a completely different novelization an adaptation by joan d vinge who is a pretty interesting figure. She's actually kind of, depending on who you're, who you're asking, kind of a bigger deal than Waylon Drew. She is a Hugo Award-winning science fiction author. She did the 1980 novel The Snow Queen. And she's also done a lot of adaptation work, especially for young readers. Like she did the Star Wars Return of the Jedi storybook based on the movie, which I grew up reading. It's like a picture book stills from the film and then like the story of the film. Other things like a, like a Dune storybook, Return to Oz, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, Lady Hawk. We've never seen this before. Mm -hmm. If you go onto the Willow wikis, it's not listed. It's not that it doesn't exist. It's that no one even knows to look for it. It's out there. You can easily get a copy of this if you search for Willow and Joan D. Vinge. But you'd never be able to find a piece of reference material telling you that it existed. It's almost like it's from
0: a parallel dimension.
2: Right. Like if you have an old copy of what was the Lucasfilm fan club that became Star Wars Insider, the magazine, and you go to one of the 1988 issues, we have some of these here, and you look at the page dedicated to Willow merchandise, there's the Whalen Drew novel, there's the Willow source book, there's all kinds of other things we've talked about. This book isn't there. And I think it being listed as a UK novelization is actually a misnomer on eBay. What it actually is, is the Willow young adult novel. And it was sold everywhere. The States, Mm. the UK. It's published by Random House. It would end up at like, you know, a school book fair or something. You see these things all the time. I have both the novelization of the film Mortal Kombat and also the young adult version of the novelization of the film Mortal Kombat. (laughs) I mean, they did this sort of stuff often. It makes complete sense that this would exist, but it's a totally different cover, a piece of artwork we've never seen before. It's not particularly good, but it's interesting. And it is a totally different adaptation, which I have now read. And going in with this, I had a lot of questions. You know, we know that there were things in the Waylon Drew novel that were not in the film, and we don't necessarily, even after having talked to Bob Dolman, know for sure, what was or wasn't in a script at any given point in time. Mm -hmm. There were a lot of things that Wayland Drew expounded upon, like talking trolls in Bavmortis Castle, which Bob's like, that never happened. That was not a thing. But then we've seen a lot of like script fragments and other stuff from different listings on, say, the Prop Store of London and so on. So I'm reading this, and all of a sudden, I start seeing things in here that are like, oh my God, this is in the Wayland Drew book. Yeah. So this indicates that these things are from a script, but we don't know what script. And, you know, there are for sure points where Waylon Drew diverted and expanded the story, but that indeed both of these books came from the same source material direct from Lucasfilm, something that was given to them maybe even before filming started so they could get these books out before the movie came out.
0: That all makes sense timing-wise.
2: The Joni Vinge novelization is great. If you have a, a young kid who wants to read a Willow novel, you can find it quite cheaply. It's well-written, and, it, and it's full of extra content. So in terms of places where I saw a clear difference between this and the Wayland Drew novel, one of the clearest examples of it is Valknar, the Nelwyn warrior. We know from Wayland Drew's novel and then furthermore reflected in the Willow source book that Vonkar had uh, a huge backstory. He was one of the only Nelwins in the village who ever left the village and had his own globe-trotting adventures before he came home. Mm-hmm. He's worldly, he's well-seasoned, and that is why he didn't even hesitate to go
0: to the Daikini Crossroads. He's like the Fellowship of the Ring merged into one Nelwin. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's not superhuman, you know? He's just, he's a Nelwin who... Didn't want to be a homebody. Yeah, so he he was like part Bilbo, part Frodo, part Aragorn, (laughs) part Gimli, part Legolas. I mean, the only thing he didn't have was magic, so he probably wasn't any part Gandalf. (laughs) No.
2: So in this version, in the Joan D. Vinge version, where the Nelwins are on the road leaving for the crossroads, it says very clearly none of them had ever been so far from home or ever dreamed of the kinds of things they saw now. Clearly ruling out... Kar ever going on globe trotting adventures hmm. so there are points indeed where these sources diverge. but as I was reading it I realized you know this is a, a young adult adaptation. It's very trim, it's got large font size and it is 125 pages, which is probably the upper threshold of how much space they give a book like this. yeah so it's slim. there's not a lot of time to elaborate on the source material and invent a whole backstory for vonkar. And I'm reading this book and I'm reading lines from the films that I recognize, But I'm also reading lines that I recognize that are not in the film, specifically from screenshots of second draft scripts being sold on the prop store of London. Oh. You can go there right now as of this episode's recording and you can find two different second draft, second revision scripts dated April 1st, 1987, going for almost $800 a piece. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and um, there are screen captures of, like, here's, you know, here's what the product looks like mm-hmm. with some pages that have lines that aren't in the film that are in this novel verbatim. Well, there you go. Yeah. In all likelihood, we're looking at a second draft script that was given to both Joan D. Vinge and Waylon Drew that became the novelizations for the film, which then went on to inform the entirety of the
0: Willow expanded universe such as it is. In a weird coincidence, the film itself diverged from that. Right. So these things that are spin offs with the film are from like an earlier it's almost like evolution, you know, like if it's like we all share like this common ancestry. Willow shares the common ancestry of the second draft in particular. <laughs> yeah. But the final film went off in this direction and lost a lot of stuff on the way like it lost its tail and it stood upright. Well, <laughs> even so I mean it didn't you know? it didn't
2: lose anything. It got more focused. Well, yeah, well like it, um, like certain scenes were gone. That is true. It did only lose things. It did yeah. not divert. Like nothing's different. Yeah. There's just not some sequences. Yeah. Not some lines that hint to something else. Right. So the thing that I first noticed was the Shalindria scene. The script says, the light diminishes. Shalindria is a beautiful vision with flowing hair and luminous eyes. She says, honey of Nightingale for our honored guest. I'm so happy to meet you, Willow Uffgood." The brownies come out from hiding and bustle about. Willow is given a drink in a cup-shaped leaf. Rule smacks Frangine and they both land on their butts. Tiny fairies fly up to Willow's face and giggle. Willow, how do you know my name? Chalindria dissolves and reappears beside the baby. Chalindria, Elora Dannon told me. Elora, Willow's here. And that's where, you know, you recognize yeah, that from the from film. The film sure. But so in this version, there's this whole like extra pomp of Willow being in the court of Chalindria.
0: Yeah, it's like they're literally holding court here. Yeah. Like, she's not just giving him libations, whatever yeah. Honey of Nightingale is. If you got yeah. me, let me know. More like um, an actual ruler and less of just like, oh, I, I just live here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Interesting.
2: So, what then appears in Vinge's version, it's economically written. One can reasonably assume that much of the dialogue is lifted directly from the script. Mm-hmm. In that line, Honey of Nightingale for our honored guest, mm-hmm. I'm so happy to meet you. That is exactly in it. Now, that said, there are variations. For example, I have a thing that is in both versions, but Vinge's version is a different version of it. Does that mean that she's adapting a totally different draft of the script? Or just taking or, a creative license? Yeah, or just, mm. or just building on it. So the example is when the High Aldwin gives Willow the acorns. Mm-hmm. He gives it to Willow, and in the book, Willow says, I'd love to throw on a burgle cut. I know how you feel, the High Aldwin said, but if you use sorcery for evil, you will become evil. You have much to learn, young Uffgood. But in the script, the High Aldwin says, waste magic on revenge? You have much to learn, young Ufgood. Hmm. And that whole discourse is not in the film. Right. And in fact, it's actually a whole component of like a little bit of Willow's development. Just a little bit, just a hair. Yeah. Because there's a moment where he's about to throw an acorn at Mad Mardigan
0: when he's yeah. in the pro cage, yeah, 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 and then he decides not to, and he goes, "I'd be a waste on you." you know? Right.
2: <laughs> the way it is in the book is yeah. it's like it, more of a direct
0: setup for it,
2: right? It portrays like I actually have to show some reservation. I'm a so restraint. Yes, yeah. yeah. So that's one of many like subtler themes that were sort of weeded out of the final movie because yeah. they didn't really amount to much. Willow's not like really overcoming this revengey <laughs> right, vibe, right. you know. So with all that in mind, here's some stuff from joan D. Venge's adaptation it mentions that willow was hardly more than a boy himself for his people married young hmm. which is interesting and i i believe that's kind of echoed in the source book i don't know if that would have appeared in the script for any i don't reason. remember if,
0: if they get that specific in the source book of like willow's age mm-hmm but it's interesting because Warwick was so young when they cast him. But yet, I remember until I was an adult, I didn't realize that Warwick was like 17, 16 when he was cast. I'm like, what? Right. Like he performs it like a man. Like he's like he is a full grown adult. Like I mean, like, he's got he's got his kids. kids. Yeah, two of them. Yeah. So it's like I just always imagine. No, he's just he's an adult. He's an he's he's a father. Wait, right, right,
2: you'd have no reason to believe that Nelwyn's the way they're painted, you know, being
0: a somewhat magical race in this yeah. magical
2: realm. Of course, Will is an adult. Why wouldn't he be
0: an adult? Yeah. The only thing that made him like not experienced in the world was because he just grew up in the village, not because he was also a young man. Right, yeah. Because as a kid watching it, I'm like, oh, he's a dad. You know? So it's like he is a father figure. I mean the only thing he wasn't really competent in was magic. Like he was able to, you know, run a farm, even though it's like, I was kind of struggling, but like he was still doing it, you know? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So like there was nothing else about him that seemed young or misguided or short-tempered or impatient or any of that. Mentioning that farm, that is another
2: really important point that comes up again and again in dialogue Mm -hmm. that was of great emphasis. So that scene where cut comes in and he's like... Where'd you get these seeds? You're tilling this land. I'm gonna get this land. Your crop's not gonna be ready on time. Mm-hmm. This is something that Willow mentions again and again, and the lines just eventually got cut. That he needs to get back in time for his crops yeah. because if he doesn't,
0: his family's gonna suffer.
2: Yeah, Burgle cuts gonna take his land, and he, the whole thing of a you're gonna end up working in the mines. Yeah, that's not an idle threat. That's just a fact of the economics of the Nelwyn village. Yeah, that's like a, a real. That's a possible reality for him. Yeah. So the whole mine component of the Nelwyn village is something that we've also explored in the past. Like when the prop store of London was having its big Phil Tippett sale of concept art and so on, we see concept designs for Nelwyn mine carts and so on, which is weird because there's actually no version of any script or anything we've ever seen that showcases the Nelwyn mines hardly at all. Not even the source book. Yeah. But at some point it was important enough to have somebody draw out some designs for what a mine cart would look like. Because you never know. (laughs) Yeah. So other parts where we see emphasis on the miners, the tug of war sequence, which is a sequence that Bob Dolman actually shot for the film. He was a six unit director. Um... that was has been written in everything i've seen as a tug of war between miners and farmers. Oh. I went back, i've gone back to the film. There's no visual distinction between the two of them. Mm-hmm. That's just a little element that didn't end up making it. Like there's a an emphasis on mining tools and farmer tools based on those two groups being utilized in defending the town from the death dogs? That's true, yeah, yeah. Which isn't also really a strong visual factor. I don't even know if you could pick it apart like are do you see any pickaxes in there? I mean, you see the um pitchforks. Right. But you don't really see like pickaxes or anything, right? I don't don't think they invested any money into mining stuff. That was not because it's not important to establish that at all. It's good as a threat of just like
0: you know, because where's the mine? It's underground, out of the way. If you want to see it, you have to go out of your way to go see it. Something that I like about the council
2: sequence in the Nellan Village, and I don't recall this being in any other version. It might have just been Joan Devine adding it in. Is that before Migosh says, "I'll go with them," Mm -hmm. Kaya angrily says to the crowd, "What are you thinking?" Willow can't go alone, which I really enjoy that she put herself out there so much with this rage towards like this entire town is belittling her husband. Yeah. And then Migosh steps in. Yeah. Makes him a little bit more sheepish, which is further complimented by another thing that I've gone back and looked for in the movie but couldn't see, which is as they're leaving, as they're gathered around, Migosh's doting mother was still fussing
0: over him. (laughs) Aww. (laughs) He's taking care of his mother. No one else would. (laughs) It's working hard. Working hard in them minds. There's a thing that was mentioned, I believe
2: it was in the novel, it's been a long time since I've read the Whale and Drew novel, that was the meeting place before the Nellons go off is in front of a bunch of standing stones. Mm-hmm. And as I recall, there was a scene where the High Alduin, like morphs out of one of those stones in like this bizarre theatrical, Yo, check Magical, it out, yeah. have confidence in what you're doing because I'm a magic man and I'm telling you to go. Yeah, I have not seen that anywhere. And it doesn't happen here either, so I'm inclined to believe that was an invention of Wayland Drew.
0: Maybe he thought that you needed to see the Higheldwyn do something seriously magical to believe, you know? Well, well he's just—he's about to do the rock dove thing, right? But that could a skeptical person would be like, "Well, what this is just sleight of hand?" Because he was like, "Oh, the bones tell me nothing." So wait, is this guy just like a fraud the whole time? So, you know what I mean? I mean, I don't get that from the movie. I think I can understand why you wanted to see big magic from the high wizard of, you know, of the no one village.
2: What's funny about it is I always thought, oh, you know, that that is a distinct possibility that that could have been in the film because the morphing technology used for Finn Rizal's transformation sequence at the end, it was like cutting edge. Yeah. Would they not love to have used it again in the film? Might have been too expensive or time consuming. Maybe, yeah. As it stands, it turns out, and this is something I've checked, that entire sequence is totally restructured. So the way it happens in this book is, I believe, the way it was shot and it was changed in editing based on scrutinizing the scenes. Uh huh. So in the film, the Aldwin talks with Willow about his finger while walking with him.
0: There was a test. Right. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. And then he walks up to everyone, does the bird trick. Forget the bird, follow the river. Great Um, moment. But in the book, the finger conversation happens after the bird thing. And in the film, as they're walking... You can see, in the widescreen version at least, you can see other Nelwins in the background in the opposite direction from where Willow and the Alden are walking, waving. Like, Uh, goodbye.
0: Yeah.
2: But they haven't, like, had the big
0: gathering yet with all the people. The way it was probably shot and written was, all right, uh, good luck, everyone. Ignore the bird. Follow the river. And then everyone goes. But just before they leave, he's just like... Willow, one more thing before you go. Blah 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 blah. Exactly. Whereas now it ends more on a on a thrust into it's a the. Good, it's you know, a good transition. Yeah, it's a it's really the, good. It's, it, it's it's better. It's br- much better. It brings up the energy, and then boom, you're off on your way. Which makes sense. Yeah. Now here's an alternate version of the um, finger
2: conversation. You lack faith in yourself, Willow, he said gently. He pulled out a small flask of mead. Drink? <laughs> no. Willow shook his head, still trying to believe that his instinct had actually been right the high aldwin took a swig and then put the flask away more than anyone in the village you have potential to be a great sorcerer and so on and so forth but i like
0: the i, lo- I love the High aldwin drinking yeah. that that diminishes him a little bit just it's like like really dude like it's, it's is is it noon yet like, like should, I, should, I, should i really be listening to this guy Dude, he just turned a rock into
2: a living bird.
0: Yeah, but is he? He's day drinking, like in
2: full view of the entire
0: village. I don't know. This is serious business, Doug. No one leaves the village. I. But, the, the, but he's not leaving. Why is he drinking? He should be like Willow. Take this with you. Just take <laughs> Willow. Trust me. Don't ask what's in this vial. <laughs> just drink it, and you're gonna feel better. Tastes well, like it's, whiskey.
2: It's it's honey of nightingale, obviously. <laughs> I was very excited once we got to the crossroads sequence. Because the Poas scene is in this book. Now, this is something from the Wayland Drew novel that ended up in the source book as well. That is a whole, like, I don't know, is it a medieval fantasy style race? Is it a group of Daikinis? I'm not sure. But they're called Poas. They're hulking, tattooed, barbarian monstrosities. Mm -hmm. And they roughhouse the entire crossroads while the Nelwins are hiding and set Mad Mardigan on fire. They appear later in the Roadhouse sequence
0: as well. Yeah. They always sounded kind of like half-orcs. Right. You know? Like a man-like, but bigger and more brutish and a little more uncivilized. So it's interesting.
2: And it was clearly never filmed, because if it was filmed, you'd see indications of Mad Mardigan having been set on fire that would be unavoidable, just like Willow being mysteriously wet when he gets back from Rizel's island after having deleted a whole scene there. So it was clearly never filmed. That never got developed. But it changes the sequence of things a little bit. It takes place at night. So you'll remember that in the film there's this weird noise. It's like... it's not like a wolf but it's like this weird yeah. sound and it startles all the Nell ones they back off They're like, what the and, and then on? Willow backs into Mad, Mad Mardigan's Martigan. cage exactly yeah. so in this one that happens at night and there's it's not specifically said but there's an indication that that could have been the Poas out in the horizon like uh, raising hell
0: it's almost spookier when it happens in the day
2: yeah it is actually <laughs> it's very weird Willow's like he tried to strangle me cut says I want to go home Migosh points down the road he says more daikinis The Nelwins looked up hopefully as torches flickered in the distance. A horse-drawn wagon was careening down the road towards them. As it neared, they heard voices. Loud, drunken voices. They dove back into the bushes as the wagon thundered up to the crossroads. Four wildly yelling, tattooed Poas hung out of the wagon. Waving their torches, they set the cage that held the skeleton on fire. Then they turned and jabbed their torches into the other cage. No! No! The prisoner, which was Mad Mardigan, yelled, Help! Stop! The cage burst into flames. The Poas drove on, howling with laughter. He beat frantically at the blazing wood with his bare hands. His sleeves caught fire. Thanks for your help, Pex, he screamed at the Nelwins. Willow and his comrades scrambled out of hiding and began to throw dirt on the flames and on the prisoner until the flames were out. Are you all right? Migosh asked, looking up at him with concern. Me? The prisoner said sourly. Never better. They set me on fire. He spat a mouthful of dirt. You wanna give the baby to them? They eat babies. He jerked his head at the retreating Poeas, rubbing his sore, burned arms. Then it turns into the don't listen to him Burgle cut yeah, you know yeah. discussion. Then the nell ones go off. But like there's that whole bizarre sequence. In the whale and Drew version,
0: I think they actually played football with a soccer football with a skull. Yeah. I remember mentioning something like that, yeah. It's like they were really saying a lot with this scene early on, the idea of like how do we show there's more than just Daikini's out here? How do we show there's a lot of danger out here? Even from like, they've just emerged from the woods into Daikini territory, you know, Oh, give the baby the first Daikini you see, then hurry home. But it's like, the first person we see is a prisoner. There's weird spooky noises out here and there's monsters. And it's like, there's all these things. And then there's a battle, there's a war, there's an army going through. It's like, this is a bad place. Like, this, like, yeah, this is, yeah. we, we do not belong here. <laughs> and I think you still get that in the movie, but the fact that they were trying to go so far with it, like, all at once would have been, I mean, to meet the point, overwhelming for the no one. Like, yes. I mean, it's, it's insane. So, when Eric and Mad Mardigan meet, Mad Mardigan's
2: in the crow cage, Eric has this great line that's not in the movie that I think is really cool and telling. After that stunt at Land's End, you're lucky I don't kill you, mm. is what Eric says to Mad Mardigan. You serve no one, remember? So that's a whole story there. It's a place called Land's End, Mm -hmm. awesome, and he reminds him that you serve no one.
0: Yeah, I I believe that story's in the source book, or at least a version of it. A version of it, yeah. Yeah.
2: (laughs) When the Brownies capture Willow and Migosh, Migosh actually breaks his arm falling into a pit. Oh, shit. Which is used as a further point of reasoning as to why he shouldn't go with Willow. Oh, man. Right? Yeah, yeah. There's a quick scene of Rule testing out the dust of broken hearts on a ferry just before they leave. It's just 2 seconds and it's kind of weird and makes Rule seem like a less likable guy. Yeah. It's, well, they had to
0: demonstrate how it worked, I
2: guess. I mean, but, and they know. do and, you know, they still do. Like yeah. the thing with the cat still happens. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's clearly more entertaining. <laughs> There's a thing that we mentioned in the prior episode about Willow seeing the battle between the Knockmore soldiers and the yeah. Galadorn army, yeah. right? Yeah. And we thought, was that in the script ever? That's a, that's huge. Like, a battle sequence like that? Oh my god, that's a gigantic thing for them to have ever considered undertaking. Was it really in the film? It's in this book as well. So it's most likely in that second draft. Yeah, so uh, let me read it for you, in fact. This way! This way! Frangine shouted with his usual insufferable arrogance. Carrying the baby, Willow followed as patiently as he could. Will it take long to find this Rizal? Frangine shook his head. not long. She's been exiled to an island just over those hills, Rule said and pointed. She's been what? Willow stopped short. By the evil queen, Bavmorda, finished rule. Rule, you fool, hissed Jean. He doesn't need to know everything. What are you saying? Willow demanded. What do you mean island? He shook Shilindria's wand at the brownies who ducked. Don't play with that, and you'll recognize this is pretty much in the film, yeah, yeah. a version of it. Jean warned him. Shilindria told you it holds vast power. Only a great sorcerer can use it, not a stupid peck like you. A branch smacked Willow in the face, emphasizing the point. Are you sure you know where you're going, he said. Of course, said Frangine. With us as your guides, no harm will befall you. That's below, Rule suddenly shrieked in terror, pointing down the hill. Willow ran toward the edge of the trees. In the valley below, hundreds of Nokmar soldiers and cavalry were fighting the ragtag squad of rebel troops Willow had seen at the crossroads. Even from here, he could hear the clash of weapons and the cries of dying men. Daikinis, he murmured. The overpowered rebel troops were being forced up the hill toward their hiding place. Willow watched, hypnotized, until suddenly a sound made him spin around. Behind him was a troop of black-armored Nokmar soldiers. He crouched in the bushes, frozen with fear, as the hideous face of the Nokmar General Kale loomed above him. Oh, shit. But Kale's attention was on the distant battle. No mercy, he roared. He lowered his ominous death mask over his face and spurred his horse down the hill, and the rest of the cavalry followed, closing the trap on the doomed rebels below. Willow and the Brownies stumbled and scrambled for their lives, dodging horse after horse as the Nokmar reinforcements thundered by. Elora Dannon wailed and cried as Willow ran with her on her back through the forest, following the Brownies, while behind them the Nokmar troops descended
0: on the rebel squad and crushed them. Yeah, it makes sense when you see Eric later in the film, he's just like, What are you talking about? We were slaughtered. Like this is yeah. you get to see it. I mean, it's enough to
2: have yeah. Eric deliver that line. Yeah. But I mean, that's crazy. That yeah. they ever considered I mean, presumably they said, you know, that's too expensive. We are not gonna we're not gonna do that. Mm-hmm. But like that they even considered it that it got this far along. Oh, like, when it's on the page, you can do anything. Yeah. But like it's just another establishment of like Willow, you're in some <laughs> you shit. You do now. not belong here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you gotta get out. Mad Martigan, post cart chase explaining Alora's kidnapping is different. He says, I was attacked by a huge, hairy, vicious, smelly Cyclops. No shit. Right. Now, that actually did happen to him at a, another time completely, as per the Willow Source book. Yeah. That's part of what happened at Land's End. That's part of his betrayal. And it the was fact a-
0: that nobody believed him. Supposedly, the Cyclops thing did happen, but nobody believed him. They thought he was an act of cowardice of why he didn't show up but he was actually fighting a cyclops. Yeah. And because people thought like cyclopses were either extinct or or a myth or something along those lines, for him to use it here, almost like, really dude, like twice? Like, I'm willing to buy the first one. But like, the cyclops distracted you from the baby? Like, I don't know, dude. You're not making a good case for yourself. It makes the first one sound less likely.
2: Well, what's funny is is that up until this point, and as far as I know, even in the Whale and Drew novel, there has never been a mention of Cyclops and Willow outside of the source book. Yeah. So it's kind of surprising that it's here, especially because Frangine replies, I am not smelly, as in the huge smelly Cyclops was Frangine. Mm-hmm. And then Rule nodded tipsily, still drunk from the beer. Beer! Frangine stole the baby while you were taking A, and it gets cut off.
0: Oh, couldn't for, say pee-pee?
2: Presumably for censorship purposes, because it's a young adult novel. But I think it's, it's funny who it says, you were taking A, gets cut off could have been not, a shit
0: yeah like, <laughs> it makes, you were taking a shit yeah, it makes it a little worse <laughs> to be honest i think i think if you're making a poo in the woods it's easier to have the baby stolen from you as opposed to if you're just you know just taking a whiz because she could still be strapped to his back you know yeah but pee pee is also a funnier you don't you, know, you don't brownie. expect you
2: don't expect it yeah it's so yeah that was odd and there, i found one <laughs> other moment of censorship presumably anyway unless unless it was originally written that way when Man Mardigan and Sorcerer are squaring off in the tent, all we get is one move, jackass. It gets cut off. It's, you know, and you uh-huh. really will be a woman.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, because you don't want to get too uh, descriptive for the young readers. Yeah.
2: So the fish scene, not surprisingly, is in it, the fish boy sequence. I guess I won't read this. I can't assume that you people listening out there have the now very hard to find Blu ray that has the sequence in it, but we have talked about the fish boy a- sequence. At length, yeah. There's an interesting throwaway line when they get back to the shore. Finn Rizal says in the film, it is Alora Dannon isn't she beautiful? Mm-hmm. There's a line in between there that could be just fin jadding stuff. It is Alora Dannon at last the sky and earth can rejoin. Is't she beautiful? Hmm. And what's funny that that specific line there is actually a little indicative of the way they treat the prophecy of Alora Dannon in the Chris Claremont novels. No, oh. no one ever says exactly that phrase, but that kind of like. Balance, return to balance or something? Yeah, and the, the language surrounding, the way they describe that balance is very similar. Mm-hmm. While they're marching behind the horses on the way to the snow camp, Sorsha is up alongside them and Rizel says to her from her cage, Sorsha, you remind me of your father. Sorsha frowned. Don't insult me. He was a weakling. He was a warrior, Rizel answered gravely, and a great king. He was a traitor and an enemy of Nakmar. Your mother has poisoned you, Rizal said. And then the, Elora's cold and hungry, that that thing happens. One of my favorite parts, without question, that I would have loved to have seen in the film is this. Mad Mardigan recognizes Kale, and then eventually Kale recognizes Mad Mardigan.
0: No shit. (laughs) And
2: it's so good. they're riding up to the snow camp and yeah, Madden and- Martin's like, ah, oh, shit, it's kale.
0: And you just assume well, his reputation precedes him. Yeah, 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 I mean, th- he's like the mountain who rides from Game of Thrones, but he's got a skull for a mask. <laughs> <laughs> so they're in the cage
2: and Willow's making the life spark with the mud and you never really get a sense of like, what is he doing there exactly? Like Madden Martin's yeah, like, gotta what to I- charge it up or something. What is that? It smells terrible. Well, there was an- another step to like making this potion thing happen and to what end we don't see here in the novel or the film or anything. Like, why is he doing that? We don't actually know. There's one other component. It needs to be set on fire. It needs to be burned to ash. Mm -hmm. So he's like, where am I going to get fire? Mad Mardigan offers him a flint that he had hidden in his clothes. And he's mocking Rizel's he's a fool line. He's like, well, I'll show you. I have flint, lady. Yeah. But then Kale shows up. Kale stared at Mad Mardigan. I know you. No. Mad Mardigan shook his head earnestly. I'd remember you. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Mad Mardigan. Kale snarled. No. Mad Mardigan backed up a step, beginning to sweat. Mad Mardigan's dead. Good, Kale rumbled. He stole my woman. (laughs) He stole mine too, Mad Mardigan said indignantly. (laughs) (laughs) How good is this? I killed him. I'm a master swordsman. Let me out of here. I'll win this war for you. Ooh. (laughs) Right? Oh my God, I love that he's still using these lines. Yeah, yeah. Kale lurched forward, grabbing Mad Mardigan by the throat. He yanked him up to the bars. The war's already won. He flung Mad Mardigan to the ground and stomped away. The man mutters to himself, if only I had a sword. Hmm. They linger on that more. He says that more often in this version. Yeah. So that when he actually gets that sword. You're like,
0: oh, damn. Like, no it, wonder. In yeah. fact,
2: like at this point, he hasn't touched a sword. He hasn't done anything with the sword. And Willow is actually pretty skeptical. You're talking about being a great swordsman. Yeah. Bullshit Because this dude runs his mouth all the time. Right. Yeah. So that's further emphasized in this. Yeah. So that when he gets a sword, you know, it's. I don't think Willow's line of, you are great. I don't think it's actually in this. Yeah. But- the reality of that is like no they've been building towards this there's a degree of hesitation that through
0: willow the audience is also experiencing i, but- I really feel like in the movie you do have that moment as an audience and then willow echoes your sentiment right because you're just sort of like you know he gets the sword he cuts the tent down he kisses the sword and all of a sudden he pops out of the tent and he just like slays like 10 guys in a row and that's when you're like damn like out of like because <laughs> yeah. you haven't seen it yet yeah and then that same moment you are great like it's Perfectly. So
2: matched. but what's funny about this is that actually like, Mad Mardigan as a character, it, it's like this whole time he's been missing a part of himself. Yeah. He is emasculated yeah. and doesn't have the opportunity to be Mad Mardigan. Yeah. Without a sword, he isn't Mad Mardigan. He's just a guy who claims he's Mad Mardigan he's a loser. only yeah. when it befits him to claim that yeah. he's Mad Mardigan. <laughs> he distances
0: himself from it at any given <laughs> opportunity.
2: Yeah. Then they get down to the actual snow village where Eric is hiding out. In the film, when they finally say, like, here's what we're doing, Eric says, lean, even if you can find it. In this, he says, lean, nobody's been there in years. Hmm. The myth of lean sort of changes shape depending yeah. on what draft you're reading, which we'll see more of later. Mm-hmm. When Sorcha's kidnapped and they're navigating the canyon, she says, what are you going to do with me? And Mad Mardigan, out of nowhere, because this has not been established at all, he says, I'm taking you to your father.
0: Well... Uh... Roselle did say that while they were marching on their way to camp, right? You know, from the cage.
2: The way it's delivered, it almost sounds like kind of patronizing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she frowned, surprised. I don't even remember my father. He means nothing to me. And then Mad Marigan echoes Roselle says he's a great king. The Wall of Thorns sequence is in this as well. That's where they're riding the horses through this canyon. Mm-hmm. Well, the canyon is a maze. It's a labyrinth. It's a hazard to getting to Tira's Lean Is the way that it's been painted in all these different book versions. This one included. And, and there, there is a wall before they get to that picturesque valley that houses Tirislene, a wall of thorns that they have to pass. And it's interesting because it puts Mad Martigan in a really unusual place for his character, which you will see. He caught up with Willow just in time for them to pull their horses to a halt. Ahead of them, a canyon was blocked by an impassable wall of thorns. Rizel, Willow called, we have to turn back. Light three fires three paces apart and bring down Bavmorda's wall, Rizel commanded. They leaped from their horses and ran to obey her. Willow held the baby tight, watching for Kale's troops, while Madmardigan urgently chipped sparks into the thorns of the flint. Use the fourth chant of unity, Rizel called to Willow. Tuatha, Luminacht Tuatha, Willow shouted. Both of you, Rizel ordered. Hmm. Madmardigan looked up, then looked at Willow. Me? he said, incredulous. Tuatha Luminacht Tuatha, Willow began again. Tuatha Lum, uh, wh- what is it? Mad Martigan demanded. The flame blazed up suddenly in the wall. Tuatha Luminacht Tuatha, they cried together, perfectly this time. Tuatha Luminacht Tuatha. The wall of thorns burst into flames, withering away as they watched. By the time Cale and his troops, including Sorsha, reached the wall, there was nothing left of it but smoldering twigs. Willow and Mad Mardigan were gone. Interesting. It's a weird distraction. It's a weird thing. It makes complete sense that they removed it, but odd to put Mad Mardigan in a moment like that where he has to engage in... In the magic. Yeah, it's like Han Solo using the Force, you know? Yeah, yeah. Reading another version of Sorsha's turn really made me feel for why it's so meaningful within the context of the novels. We know why it didn't play on screen, but it's so beautiful and important to the themes of the story of Willow overall that, you know, the Dust of Broken Hearts has Mad Martigan get all grabby on her, but the reality is, is that she, having been raised by this evil witch, Mm -hmm. has been brought up in war, knows no love, and as soon as she's in the presence of First of all, someone who's kind to her, who says things to her. And that, lets his
0: guard down entirely.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that she may have either only dreamed of or never even dreamed of at all. Mm-hmm. And then seeing Willow interacting with the baby and like the sacrifices that they're making. And these people, two upright walking folks and an animal are fighting against an army. For a baby. For a baby. And a baby that she can't relate to, doesn't know how to care for. Mm-hmm and then the added punctuation of of seeing her father again and remembering, oh, my God, I did have a
0: relationship with this person. I Had was a very life. young, yeah.
2: but I remember it, and my mother took that away from me and made me forget. Yeah, it's, try to
0: turn me into a Terminator, basically. Yeah, <laughs>
2: and it's so powerful that all of a sudden her heart is open through desire, in one respect with Mav Mardigan but also through the bliss of goodness and how powerful that is. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite stories within what's happening in Willow, but it's not actually in the movie.
1: I think it might be, like, the most beautiful aspect of the film, for me. Yeah. I, I really am touched by that aspect of the movie.
0: And I think there's enough of it in the film, like, mm-hmm. t- so that her transformation doesn't come from out of nowhere. I mean, it's not like Rogue One, where Jyn so suddenly is like, we have hope! I'm like, who has, wh- when did you feel that? You know, like, I don't know. What, <laughs> yeah, you? Know. you <laughs> yeah. Of all people, you? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't get it. But at the end of <laughs> well, Willow... She got hope in the reshoots, that's where yeah. she got it. <laughs> <laughs> but... At the end of Willow, when she turns, I have no doubt that she's turning. And it's not just because Mad Mardigan is Val Kilmer and he's looking so attractive. It's just that they have these shots where you watch her watching them. And that's where the change happens. Yeah. And it's interesting to have that even in the middle of an action scene. These shots that linger on her observing the heroes and how she reacts to that says something.
1: And, and that's what I think is so beautiful about it, is it's it's muted, but you can totally pick up on it.
0: Yeah.
2: The deleted scene with her father, it's better in the books because what they ended up filming, I totally understand why they cut it. It's too much. It's really cheesy. It doesn't land the same way that you can when you actually have the opportunity to be inside a character's head. Right. When you're in Sorsha's head, everything you see in the film about her character arc is magnified, and yeah. it's great. So this takes us then to the assault on Nokmar. You'll recall in the Whale and Drew novel, I found that, oh, this is weird. In the film, after they've been freed from being pigs and they're coming up with a plan of how we're going to get inside, Willow says, in my village, we have gophers. And Matt Mardigan's like, Willow, this is warfare, not agriculture. What are you doing? And then in the Whale and Drew version, it was hedgehogs. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. It's a European fantasy. Yeah. Gophers, I don't, do they have gophers over there? I don't know. I don't know. Well, that was the Whale and Drew version with hedgehogs. Weirdly, Joan D. Vinge, gophers. Hmm. They might not have even had the same draft of the script. It might have just been one that was like a revision separate from each other, and Vinge's was ever so slightly closer to the one that got filmed. Interesting. During the charge on Knockmar Castle, Mad martigan shouts to Sorsha, "I know why they cut this, but I think this is pretty great too. You are my moon, my sun, my stars." and adds, "I mean it." And they kiss, should it be their last. Oh. It's like yeah. That was not bullshit. It- Certainly he was provoked by this magic Sure, But it inspired him to say the things That no one in their right mind would say Yeah,
0: I don't care who knows it <laughs>
2: <laughs> And there's one last thing here Just a little other touch of the, the plot threads That were taken out Bavmorda in the conflict up in the tower says "Sorsha, you're pathetic Rizal says she has discovered kindness Bavmorda Bavmorda says then you've seen your father And Sorcia says yes I have He's alive Her voice trembled I saw what you did to him. And then Badmore says, to child, I despise you now. <laughs> That's where it all, it That's all comes. That's comes. the movie takes off after that. Yeah. But man, even in the young adult rendition of Willow, either way, if you're reading these books, you're getting to experience the film that you love with this really fulfilling expansion of it. If the camera could just pivot to the side, you get to see more. And you don't need more than the film. Yeah. It's a wonderful film. Otherwise, we wouldn't be fucking talking about it. Well, it was it, made to be a film. Yeah. So here's the rest of the story, though, in, in terms of our world, in terms of Willow Watch. I'm reading this, and I'm like, God. Okay, so clearly this, there's a script. We don't have $800 to spend on a second draft revision script. Right. But once upon a time, I did see a Willow script. It was at the college I went to the University of Central Florida. They have a really amazing library. It's filled with all kinds of the sort of niche eccentricities that only appear in a college library that's been around for at least a little while. What I didn't remember was what that script was. I hadn't forgotten that I'd seen it. I just didn't think it was particularly important because I assumed in, you know, present day while we're doing Willow Watch and doing all this digging, well, it's probably just...
0: Just some mass-produced
2: thing or whatever. Yeah, or Or the shooting script even. Like, it was probably close to what we had. Yeah. Well, then I looked it up online. It is a first draft, third revision. It's earlier than anything these novelists ever saw. So suffice it to say the very next day, early in the morning, I went to that library and I scanned the whole thing and I read (laughs) that sucker and it is batshit crazy. And it's not just any script. Like I said, this is the one they used to finance the film. At the top of the first page is the name Mr. Alan Ladd, as in the famous film producer Alan Ladd, who worked with Lucasfilm a number of times. He was at MGM. And Bob Dolman told us that um, if it went to Ladd, then it is a selling draft revised strategically for sending to studios and getting greenlit. As Bob told it to me, you know, Howard the Duck bombed, which deflated George Lucas. And he knew that he couldn't sell Willow as easily as he could if it hadn't been for Howard the Duck. Hmm. So getting this money was no small thing. Though it says it's a first draft you know third revision but it's not actually a first draft i was reading this being like oh my god there's a bunch of different things but it's so close to the movie we know all the things are in the right place all the momentum is there there's so many similar lines due to something to do with the writers guild of america all drafts are first drafts i don't know when they mature to second drafts but first draft third revision actually means it's like the third
0: draft like their third approach at making it
2: yeah yeah makes sense so then the second draft is who knows But in fact, it's not actually even the the real third draft because what Bob meant by the selling draft is that it is a special variation meant for fast reading. So producers who are notoriously more likely to like look at dialogue and skim than actually read the stage direction on the page, they need to be able to get the story as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So Lucas told Bob Dolman, put in the emotions that aren't in the script. So Bob had to add expository dialogue. that would give context to a scene if you didn't actually read what was going on. Right. Like, look, here come the Nokmar Horseman.
0: Right, right. When just above it, it says the Nakmar horsemen approach. Exactly. And then also- <laughs> Almost like a radio play.
2: <laughs> yeah. And also adding in bracketed emotion. Like it would say, you know, it says character's name. Parentheses, angry. I hate you. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> it's like, yeah, of, of course you're angry.
2: You're shouting that you hate somebody. Bob credits George with being quite savvy in the you know the, the business side of things, as we've heard many times that Lucas really did have a great mind for how to negotiate the business aspects of Hollywood. He had a script for every different set of eyes, the version of it to make it happen that the person needed to see. Which I think is like if you're an aspiring screenwriter, is a great lesson to learn. He also told me that before the time of this draft, they were already training dogs and swordsmen. Before the movie was even greenlit Lucas was already paying people out of pocket to do preemptive work because he knew it would take six months to train dogs (laughs) to wear a mask. Before we go to this next draft, though, we want to thank you. Thank you for listening to this show. And if you like it, then maybe consider helping support this program. We record in the Nerdy Show studios in Orlando, Florida. Nerdy Show, which is another podcast network I run in addition to the Consequence Podcast Network. We are entirely listener supported. Sometimes we have ads, but just like Consequence, we're not having ads all the time. When we don't have those, we got to support the facilities that we have and that is done through Patreon. There's all kinds of State of the Empire bonus perks over there on our Patreon page. Even a dollar makes a huge world of difference and you will get cool stuff in return. So head to nerdyshow.com Patreon. You can also go to nerdyshow.com Amazon to buy all kinds of stuff through there, including probably this uh, young adult novel by Joan D. Vinge or the Whale and
0: Drew novel. Yeah. Go pick up some Willow merch and at no extra cost, help out State of the Empire.
2: And, you know, I actually don't I don't know what kind of affiliate perks, what kind of kickback we get from buying stuff from, say, sellers, Mm -hmm. you know, like through Amazon, but outside of Amazon. I don't know that. But even anything you buy there, paper towels, whatever, will give back to us. And that's a huge help. If you shop through Amazon, might as well do it to support State of the Empire as well. Remember to rate and review this program on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. There's a lot of Star Wars podcasts out there, but there are not a lot of Willow podcasts out there. I haven't found
0: any Willow podcasts, let's be honest. There are none. Yeah.
2: (laughs) This is it. So if you dig what we do, please help people find us by rating and reviewing. You can share it. You can spread it by word of mouth. That certainly does help and is awesome, and we would be super appreciative. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at LucasFilmPod. But... In terms of podcast marketplaces, in terms of, like, the easiest way for people to find us, rating and reviewing makes a huge difference, and uh, if you give us a, a review, we will read it here on the show. It's been a while. Make our dreams come true. Anyway, let's get on with the script. Death Dog's talking this!
0: Yeah, that was the one that really surprised me, because after you scanned it, you read through it, and then you sent it to me, and I read it, I tried to go through it as fast as I could while still, you know, keeping track like of everything. Like a producer. Yeah, like a producer, <laughs> just it that full experience, and, uh... That's like page four or whatever. And I'm like, what? Like, like I thought that was a misprint. I thought it was like the death dogs are approach And then somehow like the, the sentence got broken up and it got automatically just got shifted into whatever. I'm like, but this wasn't written on software. It was written on a typewriter. So what? So like, and it, it took, I literally read it like four times. <laughs> it's like death dog. It spoke. But I'm like, well, you know, whatever. It's fantasy. Fuck it. Let's see what happens. They say. Bordak Yeah Bordak And then it's like a bark almost like, Yeah You know but
2: Just that one word That's all they say But
0: yeah. they say it And it is a word It's not just a noise You find out what it means later Yeah
2: When the death dog Attacks the Nelwyn village It's not because of Finding a shattered cradle That they realize That it was after a baby It's because someone says Bordak What does that mean And someone's like That's another word for baby I don't know what language that like is Like primal but, yeah. or
0: Something or whatever Yeah
2: Yeah that means baby In this version The, uh, the disappearing pig trick Is more of a flop than even any other version. It's the same result, but the actual disappearance is more botched. So like it really paints Willow as like cause when you see that, you're like, okay, so that was the pig's fault. The pig fucked that up. But Willow yeah. was wowing the crowd. In this version, he's not he's yeah, the not. The crowd really um, don't doesn't buy yeah. it. They're like, fraud, boo. Yeah. <laughs> There's also even more allusions to mining and the threat of mining and also the the thing about the the crops and all that. Yeah, it confirms um, that Migosh is a miner. Yeah. Migosh is like, well, you can work in the mines with me. And like Willow says, mining. I hate closed spaces. That's the last thing I'd ever do. I got to get my crop planted. <laughs> and then during the battle with the death dogs, it, it does mention that the miners and farmers wielding shovels and picks attack. Yeah. Like that's in there. As is the description of miners and farmers play tug of war. Yeah. That's also there. Weirdly, there is no apprentice ceremony.
0: Yeah, I know.
2: I was missing that. Willow goes up to the High Aldwin. And he's like, Ah, oh, Willow.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day.
2: Oh, come on man i know you're eager to be my apprentice but today is spring festival so like that whole discussion about the fingers that's not even that's yeah, not he's a not thing. searching for an apprentice
1: or yeah. any of that stuff yeah
2: he's a needy kid yeah <laughs> um so then burgle cut hears willow is eager to be your apprentice haha <laughs> <laughs> so the same chastisement as, as in the real thing but then the death dogs come and interrupt so then when they're having the big town meeting of what are we going to do Vonkar is the obvious choice But he actually backs down under pressure of the High Alduin when the High Alduin is like, are you sure?
0: Yeah, it's it's like, how about Vunkar? And all of a sudden he steps up and he's like, whoa, 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 Vunkar. You know, everyone's excited and he like, you know, like pounds his fist in his chest. And he's like, yo, what's up? Doesn't say anything. He just stands there ready to go. And then they immediately like, (laughs) High Alduin's like, now keep in mind, this is very dangerous. And, you know, someone could die. Are you willing to die for this child? And he's just like, well, not really. I mean, I think I should stay here in case more Death Dogs attack, you know, just in case. You're like, dude, what? You chickening it out like at the last second? Come on, man. Yeah, he's more of a Nelwyn
2: in this draft. Yeah. And here's here's like maybe one of the craziest things in this whole script. The village decides that Willow is going to the crossroads alone. Yeah, completely by himself. Not me, gosh,
0: not anybody. Yeah. I was very surprised at that. Like the High old like, all right, good luck, Will Owen. Hurry home when you hand the baby to the first Aikini you see. And then he walks off by himself into the woods and like has an encounter with a bear, you know, and just like it, this is awful. Like it's the deck is stacked against him so bad. <laughs> yeah. I think they think he's just gonna die. Like, I don't like I mean, there's there's no one like insinuating that they hope he dies or anything like that, but I'm like what are they expecting the realistic outcome of this is? <laughs> well, Burgo Cut's like rubbing his hands together, like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'm going to
2: marry your wife off good. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't <laughs> say that, hor- but uh, whatever you know. horrible things run through his mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the goodbye conversation between Willow and his children is virtually the same, but takes place at night as he's tucking them into bed, which is actually a really sweet scene. It makes yeah. more sense to do it the way they did in the film, but good instincts there the setup for the High Aldwin talking to Willow is also in the same sequence it is in the novel. But the rock dove thing happens. And th- remember, the finger conversation has not taken place. Yeah. So Willow says to him, oh, if I could do that, I'd turn bugle cut into a toad. <laughs> <laughs> to which the High Aldwin delivers that same line, waste magic on revenge? You have much to learn. Well, not a, he doesn't say young off good, he just says Willow. Hmm. You know, because a producer isn't going to know what his last name is. <laughs> uh, there's no
0: acorns either. No
2: acorns yeah. are bequeathed to Willow. He goes into the woods unarmed. Him and a baby. Yeah. That is it. Yeah,
0: Him and a baby. But the acorns do they show do, up. They
2: do show up, but we're not there yet. In this version, and this really became clear to me here, Willow kind of has a younger vibe. He's more eager and more naive.
0: He's a lot like Luke Skywalker. He is more, yeah. He's He he complains a lot more. Yeah. Not to the point where you don't like him, but you definitely sympathize with his problems because he is sent off by himself alone with this baby. And he has to like also take care of the baby while fending off whatever is running around a wild out there. And he has this reoccurring line of, I hate this. And it's like, and you'd think a reoccurring line of, I hate this would be annoying but it's really more of like it almost endears him a bit more because it's a constant because he has no one else to talk to like there's nothing else to bounce off of you know so in order to get a full sense on like what he's and unless that's some of the dialogue that they splice in there just for the producers to read which very well could be the case very well could be it really just shows how miserable of an experience it is that he's going through and like how hard it how hard it is it's like for about 10 minutes it's like the Revenant, <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> minus, minus the violence of like, of like being murdered and, and dug into a grave.
2: But what's interesting about this version of Willow is that he is, I think he is less likable on the whole, because you see Willow realize his destiny. He wants to be a great sorcerer, and mm-hmm. then he's here in this opportunity where he, he can be. Destiny has chosen him. He's the protector of the sacred princess. But even after that point, It's not just that he misses his wife and children, which rightly he should, but he's still worried about his crops. He's still worried about everything that's happening back home. He's still very much a worrying Nelwany.
0: But it's not out of his ego or anything, it's not out of selfish reasons because he thinks if I don't get that crop in and I got to go work in the mines, I can't provide for my family.
2: Right. But I mean, what I'm saying is that he does not ever really accept his call to destiny. Right. He is just along for the ride and shit keeps happening to him. Yeah. True, true. He's very put
0: upon. Yeah.
2: Which is not attractive.
0: Until he, <laughs> I mean, really, until he meets Shalindria, right? Like, you know, even, even and even then he's hesitant. Even
2: after that. Yeah. Like, he's doing what he needs to do. He's suffering. He be- You know, he believes in the cause. But the way he wears himself, the dialogue he says, you know, whether it's a final dialogue or not, I don't know. But it mm-hmm. just, it just, is very overbearing. Fun fact, Kaya gives Willow her hair. Mm-hmm. But in this case, she's made a braided necklace
0: from her hair. Because she has very long hair, as described in, in this draft.
2: Yeah, and it was also... The hair was actually of, of a specific emphasis in the young adult novel as well. And I, they Not a necklace of hair, but still, like... There was actually, like, foreshadowing. They lingered on Kaya's beautiful hair to make the... Before she cuts it off yeah, and gives to it to Yeah, to make that her. land harder. Yeah. There's a scene on the way to the crossroads where the Nelwans happen upon Nokmar soldiers that are overheard speaking, right? This happens. Of course, it's just Willow this time. But it's clearly elaborated in this script... That the Nokmar soldiers are part human, part beast.
0: Yeah, that's the other weird thing. Again, with the half orc kind of connotation, you know. Except not like the Poa, as as it was written in the novel, but uh, just that that's like their standard foot soldier kind of. I guess. Right,
2: and I feel like I read that somewhere before. I feel like I'd seen mention of this being a thing somewhere else, but I can't recall. I can't recall if I ever mentioned it.
0: Could it be that this how how ties into how this this script interprets Kale? I think it does.
2: Yeah. In the last episode, we talked about the
0: concept art that the famed
2: illustrator Mobius did for Willow. There was a bunch of stuff in what's been presented online via some art books that's very surprising, such as a character called King Kale, who we're like, King Kale? What the heck? And it's not Kale as we know him. Yeah, he was like a weird cat person. Yeah, a, a, a hulking, monstrous cat warlord. And, well, this is 100% tied into that because... This entire script is peppered with 10th generation Xeroxes. You can barely make it out of artwork. Mm -hmm. Some of it is really regrettably, like you can't tell what it is looking at. Some of it is lost, yeah. But that King Kale illustration is there. Mm -hmm. And well, as you'll see, forthcoming. Now the scene is in this. Mm -hmm. Confirmation that it is real, it is the thing that happened. But in this script, they're called Picts. P-I-C-T. Crossroads, night. By the blazing fire, Willow feeds the baby. We hear hoofbeats. Willow, hey! Someone's coming. Mad Martigan, Peck, quick! Douse the fire! Excited, Willow tosses more wood on the fire, picks up the baby, and waits. Mad Martigan, no, you fool! Put it out, I say! Out! Torches appear up the road. A horse-drawn wagon clatters full speed towards the fire. We hear loud, drunken voices, far from friendly. Willow quickly dives into the bushes. Four boorish Picts with tattooed faces and arms. Halt at the crossroads! Yelling, waving their torches, Mad Mardigan is hidden under his rags for fun. The Picts set fire to the skeleton cage. Then head for the other. Mad Mardigan! No! He rises up in the torchlight. The Picts taunt him. Pict, who's fire? They jab their torches at Mad Mardigan. Mad Mardigan! No! Help! Stop! Pict, where are they? Where do they go? Mad Mardigan points way up the road. The Picts ride away. As they go, they swing his cage and set fire to the floor of it. Mad Mardigan frantically beats the flames. His sleeves ignite. Willow scrambles out of the bushes and scoops up handfuls of dirt, which he chucks at Mad Mardigan. Mad Mardigan spitting out the dirt. Thanks for your help, Peck. Willow, are you okay? Mad Mardigan, as if you care. I saved your life, Peck. Those guys would have killed us. Points dramatically. You want to give your baby to them? They eat babies. Willow, I didn't know. Mad Mardigan literally licks his wounds dragging his parched tongue along the length of his forearms. Willow begins to walk away. Mad Mardigan, the world's gone insane. Good men locked in cages, criminals running free. It doesn't pay to be honest, Peck. And that's where the uh, don't call me Peck, my name is Willow, that, that sort of yeah, thing yeah. happens. So interesting, interesting how the scene changed when there's just one of them there. Also, one other, one other weird note about Mad Mardigan's time in the cage is when he's trying to butter up Willow, when he's trying to get out of the cage, Willow wakes up and he's like, morning Willow, sorry if I yelled at you, I've I've been in this cage too long, can't think straight anymore, ow, and Willie's oh man, these burns, my arms, ouch, and Willow gives him some salve, and he's like, oh yeah, that's way better, hey, here, look, I made something for the baby, he holds out a rattle, and shakes it, I don't know what the rattle's gonna look like, and Willow's like, what's inside, but Mardigan sticks his finger inside his mouth, and pries it open as wide as possible, a tooth, I'm starving. I got no use for it. <laughs> <laughs> and then, the, then the battle, like the horsemen and everything, shows up. <laughs> I really liked that moment. But uh, then things get even weirder. In the Phil Tippett prop sale of all the behind-the-scenes content, Phil Tippett, if you need a refresher course, famous special effects artist on the Prop Store of London, he sold a ton of material from all the films he worked on, including Willow. And they had just like production guides of all kinds of different stuff. And there were some like short scene descriptions that blocked out sequences, special effects, heavy sequences that would need to be planned. And in it, we saw this thing with like storks and elves. And we were like, what the heck is this? Are the elves brownies by another name? Yeah. There's trolls on like a log bridge. What is that? Hard to say. We couldn't know. Oh, but we know now. Mm -hmm. We know very well now. Strap yourselves in,
0: folks. And when it comes to elves... Forget all you know and think you know. (laughs) (laughs) Because these are not like elves in any other fantasy thing that I I can think of. Willow's on his way back.
2: That whole thing where
0: he and me, gosh, were forming like,
2: good job, boys. You deserve medals. Willow's just doing that by himself. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then he gets interrupted. The baby cries. Willow spins around. Flying towards him is an incredible vulture with enormous wings. In its claws, it carries the baby, papoose and all. It swoops straight at Willow, buzzing him. And Willow hits the dirt. He looks up. To add to the wonder, riding the vulture is an elf. Willow, hey, stop, wait. Willow scrambles to his feet, looking back at the crossroads for Mad Mardigan. Then up at the vulture. Come back here, you. That's my baby. The vulture zooms off into the tall, majestic trees of the forest with the baby crying. Shouting and waving madly, Willow gallops after it. Exterior, through the forest, day. Willow tears after the vulture, which vanishes in the towering trees. As the path narrows, something whistles past his ear. Finger-length arrows rain down on him from every direction, peppering the surrounding trees. Some even hit Willow. He plucks them out as he races along. He comes to a fork in the path. Decision. He starts down one way, then slams on the brakes. He sees ropes and nets. Oh no, it's a trap! He hurries back to the fork and takes a safer route. Oh no! He gets swallowed by a deadly pit. Interior. Elfin throne room. Underground. Willow wakes up as a pail of water hits him in the face his feet and wrists are being bound several little elves are gawking and laughing at him they wear samurai type outfits and angry little haircuts willow focusing where am i where's the baby frangine the elven king struts forward arrogantly he speaks a haughty nasal accent resembling french which this really, really amuses me because fans of the tabletop role-playing show that Doug and I are part of, Dungeons & Doritos, Mm -hmm. long-established thing is the accent that all elves speak with is some kind of French variation. I've never seen that anywhere before, but here it is in this early (laughs) draft of Willow. Green minds think alike. (laughs) Frangine. I am Frangine, king of the world. Willow struggles against the ropes that bind him. That baby's my responsibility outraged frangine smacks willow's nose with the back of his hand and i should add these elves in terms of scale they are about as big as elora dannon these are like the elves that make shoes or
0: cookies these are like <laughs>
2: hans christian andersen style elves like Keebler elves. yeah there's a size chart towards the back of the script
0: they're quite literally twice as tall as brownies yeah
2: so there's brownies elves baby daikinis nelwins daikinis Whatever the fuck kale is, yeah,
0: about half each time. Yeah. The, the, the <laughs> scale, yeah,
2: the scale of this, yeah, is crazy. Like when we were speaking with Bob Dolman, he talked about how it's a story where the size differences is, is like it was a huge factor of coming up with ways to do this. But like in this one, there's, there's just more of it, like, yeah. way more than is rational or logical, which is why it's not in the final film. Mm-hmm. So um, outraged fringine smacks Willow's nose with the back of his hand. I don't care. We paid for her. Go back to sleep, monsieur. <laughs> As he leaves, Frangine nods to an intense-looking archer elf, heavily armored with arrows and a spear. The archer dips his spear in a bowl of purple liquid. He pricks Willow's arm. Yow! He loses consciousness. Matt Morgan, I never should have trusted you. Fade to black. Interior elf throne room. Later. Willow's eyes open. A wild little face is looking at him. A wild little person is standing on his chest. Timo. T E E M O. Tongue! Too groggy to argue, Willow sticks out his tongue. Timo, the brownie, crushes a brittle leaf and tosses the dust in a Willow's mouth. Smacking his lips, Willow comes around. He sees, down between his legs, another brownie named Rule cutting the ropes. Something I feel I should mention is that uh, Timo is the name of a hut. From the Star Wars Edge of the Empire tabletop
0: RPG. Damn. Do they describe him as being lizard-like? No. (laughs) Your mother was a lizard! (laughs) Willow, who are you? Rule, quiet, you
2: fool! Timo, formal. We are emissaries of Her Majesty Queen Chalindria of the land of Tosharm. That's C-O-S-H-A-I-R-M. I I think I said it right. Uh, I don't don't know. know. That's a weird word. Willow, Queen Chalindria? She requests the presence of yourself and the young princess. Willow, who? You're the guardian, aren't you? Rule. Quit yakking, Timo. We gotta get out of here. Willow rolls onto his knees, stands up, bumps his head on the ceiling. The fuzzy-headed brownies creak open the door and beckon Willow to follow. And I should add, the brownies look way different. They look like, if you go to, like, Norway in Epcot... Like the way that they've got those, the, those little troll dolls. Yeah. Like these look like they would have been like stop motion creatures. They're so like the proportions are so yeah. weird. Or
0: heavy prosthetics.
2: Yeah. Unwieldy, terrible idea prosthetics. Yeah. yeah. They were not ready. Yeah. I mean, they were close. Ninja Turtles happened in 89, but even still, the, this, the turtles are proportionate. These guys are
0: have weird proportions. Almost reminds me of like the facial look to them was reminded me of early concepts for Yoda.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Interior, Elfin Hallway, underground. Like a rabbit warren, compartments branch off the main tunnel. Willow scrunches along behind the tiptoeing brownies. They hear the baby crying. They peek through the door. Inside a cluttered room, they see the baby crying miserably. Her tears are being carried to a high level in tiny buckets on a mechanized wheel operated by four elves. Sounds like some labyrinth shit here is what's going on.
0: (laughs) Quick for tears!
2: (laughs) (laughs) You can easily see that happening. Timo, elves—they're always tormenting babies. They make them cry to take their tears. Rule, somebody has to do it. Willow, why? Rule,
0: how else they gonna make dewdrops? I hope dewdrops is like. Slang for some kind of narcotic because (laughs) literally, dewdrops everywhere in the forest. All those were made by crying babies. That's awful. In a factory, yeah. (laughs) In a factory run by these mystical like creatures who are more like monsters. Daikini should like exterminate the elves, yeah. Just like you put a tent over it, you know, just gas them out. I guess they're also like the underpants gnomes, (laughs) uh huh. They don't really have a plan. It's like step one, make the babies cry, step two, dewdrops, step three, profit. Ah, uh, the baby shrieks.
2: Willow, I'm getting out of here. Timo, no, you let us handle this. Come along, Rule. Timo ridiculously pushes Willow away from the door. With a macho swagger, he adjusts his dagger belt, and he and Rule open the door. Interior, elfin tear factory. <laughs> <laughs> Words that I never thought I'd ever read, and I'm kind of glad I did. Actually, it's a, it's a, this is a crazy idea. And uh, I want to
0: see. You know, if they if they make a sequel, I want to see this. A tear elfin tear factory.
2: Yeah. Uh, hey, you know, uh, Lucasfilm nothing goes to waste
0: yeah yeah all right boys we gotta wrap it up got five more buckets for lunchtime let's go
2: <laughs> they enter like gunslingers in a saloon the four elves who are twice their size turn and face them timo draws his small dagger with confidence he smiles at rule watch this right between the eyes that's what Timo's saying rule to the elves he never misses Artfully, Timo poises the dagger above his head. With all his might, he throws. His dagger flip flops through the air and lands at the elves' feet. Plink plunk. Timo, oops, was that right? That wasn't right. Suddenly, the entire wall implodes. The elves scream in panic as Willow comes crashing in like King Kong. <laughs> he grabs the crying baby and tucks her under his arm. Exterior, elf hole. Day. The brownies scamper out of a hole in the ground where the elves keep their vultures corralled. Rule and Timo,
0: hiya! Get,
2: get! They untie the vultures and send them flapping away in the forest as Willow wiggles out of the elf hole with the baby. They run for their lives. Exterior, forest, chase, day. Rule and Timo tear along at incredible speed, Willow barely keeping up with them. Little elf arrows shower the forest as the angry elves chase after them, whooping and screaming exterior deep gorge day they skid up to a perilously deep drop into oblivion the elves are shrieking towards them the only chance of escape is a huge fallen tree spanning the gorge the brownies scamper out willow looks down and reels with vertigo willow i can't go out there with the baby rule timo frantically point elves (laughs) the elf army pours out of the forest willow holds his breath and ventures out onto the topmost branches of the tree Arrows zing around him as he wobbles like a drunken tightrope walker toward the middle. The brownies wait for him. Willow, oh, I hate this. Timo take your time. Don't worry about the elves. They won't come out here. Willow, why not? Rule, because of the trolls. Willow, trolls? The brownies console Willow with unworried laughter. Timo, relax. They only come out at night. An ugly troll snarls up behind Willow. They all scream and race for the other side. Another troll pops up to meet them. The trolls slink along like possums. The brownies dive through the hole in the hollow tree trunk. The elves, meanwhile, flint start a fire at their end of the tree. One troll claws at the brownies inside the tree trunk, while the other chases along gangling branches. Then the baby falls out of the papoose. She tumbles and catches on a low branch and Willow races the troll and grabs her just before she plummets to the gorge. One troll catches Rule but can't then get his claw out of the trunk. The brownies finally escape. The tree burns and breaks, dangling over the gorge by its roots. The troll howls as he falls to his death. The other scrambles up the tree, grab Willow's foot, Willow's boot slips off, and down goes the second troll. Flames lick at Willow as he at last hauls himself to safety just as the roots snap the blazing tree goes crashing down into the gorge. Willow, this is not going well. Timo, hurry, Queen Chalindria will know what to do. Willow bundles the baby and follows the brownies into the forest, hobbling slightly on his bootless foot. There's lots more weird sort of establishment of the, the brownie village and meeting Chalindria and all the pomp that was presented in here, including um, Honey of Nightingale, actually. Oh, no. Actually, in this version, it's Broke Heart of Nightingale, for honored guests. That's dust of broken heart? I guess. Maybe it's what leads into it. Yeah. And there's no wand. There is no wand. Chalindria gives him the acorns. She says that the way to Tirislene has been lost in time, but there is one person, a druid sorceress, who might guide you there. Of course, talking about Fenrisel. And this also has the battle, a different version of the battle between knock and and the calvary but but you know yeah there it is it's in it's in the script it's a thing that happened kale doesn't show up this is obviously a different version of it but it's essentially the same thing willow kind of is in this battle he's running through a corner of it as it sort of catches up to him and he has to scamper through it on his way out and goes in relatively unnoticed and and then then they go to the uh, the roadhouse there's a a nice little addition to the cart chase which they have a death dog's leaping alongside the wagon, which yeah. would have been bonkers. And would have been, bonk, bonk! just like, yeah, the whole time. <laughs> the chase ends, and there's that fireside scene. It's very brief, and Willow uses the wand and gets blown up in the tree. There's actually a little bit more there. Willow's crying and lamenting about why he wants this quest to be over. He like, lashes out at Mad Mardigan. Yeah, right? he's like, Mad Mardigan, like, you, you don't know anything about love, Mad Mardigan. Like, I'm crying because my family, you know, like, you you you, you shallow, shitty asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Mad Mardigan's like, I was in love once, Willow. She had a hold on my heart. I could barely function. I was a great swordsman. I was knighted. I could have been king. Willow, you? Mad Mardigan, me. King. But she betrayed me. She robbed me of my dream. I'll never fall in love again. And that is really surprising to have in this script. Because Mad Mardigan's still very ill-defined backstory as presented in the novel the whale and drew novel and also the source book they're similar they're a little bit conflicting they're kind of confusing and i suppose that this thing that he's offered in this version of the script here is relatively vague but that basically does happen which makes me then once again question which version of the script whale and drew actually had that he was working from yeah if we can use the gophers hedgehog change as a moment when like things shifted it was early enough to be hedgehog still yeah, and this uh, one this one's hedgehogs. This one is hedgehogs. But he definitely didn't have this script, so eh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Fishboy sequence is quite different. In fact, the whole island sequence is quite different. Mad American goes with him. The Brownies go with him, and they go with him because there's a little rumor that that one tree on Rizal's Island is actually made of gold. Man, it is. Mad Mardigan gets up there. like breaks branches off. And he's and, like, oh, right. Uh, underneath, underneath the skin of it, it is gold underneath. And he's like piling the branches. And you think, like, oh, man, is Mad Mardigan about to like get killed? Because they're like, come on, Mad Mardigan. It appears that as soon as he breaks the tree branch off, that that's what triggers the, the storm. storm. Yeah. The fish boy and the storm are not the same thing. Yeah. So that was wild. But essentially happens like virtually the same way it was actually filmed in terms of the fish boy sequence, except that there's more people in the boat. So like when it comes to bashing the fish boy with the oar and so
0: on, Mad Mardigan's doing that, I think, if I Mm -hmm. remember correctly. And he has to chuck the gold overboard in order for them to make it back safely because the storm is getting so bad.
2: There's no wand. Willow gets the acorns from Chilindria. There's no dust of broken hearts.
0: But he still has to make that goop stuff. That thing's like, oh, what is that? It smells terrible. And the Rizal having to bite his finger in the blood and he's mixing it up in the cage. He supposedly is making a philosopher's stone. So this
2: whole sequence from now on up till they escape to the snow village. There's two objectives here in terms of storytelling. They need to elaborate on Mad Mardigan being able to flirt with Sorsha enough that without the Dust of Broken Heart, some sparks can fly yeah. between the two of them. And then also Roselle is like, all right, Willow, you're not a sorcerer, but I'm going to make you one. And we're, to do that, we're going to build this thing, this object you as a novice can use to actually have some
0: sliver of power yeah like he, she says like every sorcerer needs to have a philosopher's stone which is made from feathers dung and a lock of his hair and more ingredients later that we don't know about
2: yeah and that's why it smells so yep. bad <laughs> <laughs> the line forget all you know or think you know is spoken by Roselle as she teaches willow magic it takes several scenes but eventually the stone is complete and described as a red ball of pliable putty it's interesting that that scene in spite of all the changes to the script with him you know making the life spark was left in because it really like once we realized like, Oh my God, this is actually like a thing that he was building towards. Then you realize like you go back to the actual film and you're like, what the fuck was he doing? What was Willow actually doing in that scene? In the film, it doesn't appear like he's working on it for the transformation, but he doesn't do any kind of prep like that for any other times that he
0: transforms Rizal. Well, this was his first attempt at transforming her. Yeah, I mean, there's there's
2: ways to rationalize it, yeah. but it's interesting. Like, it is actually like the construction of that thing had an actual long lasting reason in earlier drafts of the film, right. and what's left is just an artifact of it—a good weird moment of magic, you know. And it's magic; you don't have to think about it, which is why it works in the film. But that that actually has like some kind of like deeper complexity
0: was shocking to me. And I love that Matt Martigan just sort of he kind of did a. Um neil patrick harris from how i met your mother kind of challenge accepted thing self-imposed where he's just like don't worry Willow, i'll get us out of this there hasn't been a woman i you know yet that i haven't been able to seduce and willow's like i don't know mad martigan i think she's kind of mean and he doesn't say challenge accepted but it's basically his attitude where it's just like <laughs> he's like oh is that so willow will it i'll see and then he immediately starts flirting with her
2: obsessing over her yeah hair. But, it,
0: but it kind of backfires because he flirts with her and she reacts similar to how she does in the film, just, you know, where she doesn't give a shit. But as she, like, leaves, he'll, like, say to himself or to Will, like, damn, what a woman. He's like, D- ah, damn it, Van Martin, don't get too caught up in it. You gotta, this is for business, you know, it's not for pleasure. But he, But he still keeps making these side comments to himself that he's clearly... Becoming smitten with her despite trying to correct himself all yeah, the time. It's
2: really awkward. I'm so glad for the invention I, of the Dust of Broken right. Hearts. It's not think, good.
0: I think a lot of it may have been put in there just because it's that selling draft where it's like you yeah. have to sell the idea. No, he really does like her, you know. But what a woman.
2: They're walking behind the horses and he's like, Hmm, I love the smell of a woman. And Sorsha says as an angry threat, My stepfather's going to tear you apart. And Matt Mardigan pounds his chest and says towards her, I'm torn apart already. I mean it. Under all that armor is a beautiful crack. Sorcia whips her horse and gallops ahead. Like, ooh, me, Matt Martigan, pound chest.
0: <laughs> me
2: love your smell. <laughs> Why don't you love me? <laughs>
0: but so, stepfather, who's her stepfather? Yeah, who's her stepfather?
2: It's fucking King Kale, y'all.
0: Yeah, weird catman King Kale.
2: Yeah, that's her stepdaddy. She calls him that. Bev Morda's like, his queen I guess though the only scene they're in together he's like cowering
0: I yeah this and and the idea that most of the foot soldiers are these weird beast people and King Kale himself is also half beast half man type thing really gets me thinking is this like a marriage out of convenience for getting the army together like is Beth Morda using King Kale like offering him power offering him the chance to be king because she's queen she was you marry me you can be king but I need that army and he's just like oh yeah sounds great you know or or, you know what i mean like what about we don't really get that aspect of it unfortunately
2: so what ends up happening with mad martigan and Sorsha is he actually manages to wear her down by appealing to a seemingly untapped sense of vanity specifically they're marching in in the snow mountain she actually takes the time to give him some new clothes so he doesn't freeze to death because he's only wearing a loincloth by the time he gets like drug out of the water and the storm and everything, he's in his, his women's clothes that he's been like refashioning. He's down to, to just a loincloth, which makes that whole still got what it counts line make more sense because Sorsha is with him and he is virtually naked. It's kind of in a better position to be sassy to her. Like, yeah, I'm a hunk. What up? The conversation that was in the young adult novel happens between Roselle and Sorsha about her father, except that she adds in the line, not like your stepfather, not like your mother. They finally rendezvous at the larger snow camp, and that's where Kale shows up. He rides out to meet the caravan. He's described as huge, powerful, and cruel, part beast, part man, and he carries a terrible sword at his side. The scene in Source's tent with Mad martigan he's there to distract her. He's there to get the baby. But all of his poetry that he's spouting, it's not the same poetry, and it's not as good as it ends up in the film, but it is all genuine. He actually starts doing that, like unaided by magic. His chest heaves with fear and emotion, which puts Sorsha in this position of like being confronted with the word love, which is yeah. alien to her, and this hard but yearning sexy man who's spewing poetry at her. Yeah, a who's very... been putting
0: the moves on her the whole time. Yeah. So varying degrees of success, I guess. Most, mostly not. It's like this just bizarre distraction that somehow actually pays off. But I love it so much more in the film where he doesn't flirt with her at all. He hates her— and he's just like, you know, and it starts that way where it's just like, what are you staring at? Your leg. I'd, I'd like, to, like break to break it. it. And <laughs> then she, like, kicks him. And then later it's just like, well, who are you saying all those things? Oh, I love you, Sasha. You know, my my stars, Sasha he goes, what? How in love did she kicked me in the face? Like, it's so good when they're at odds. It makes so much more sense. But I wonder if, again, if this is just put in here to sort of plant the seeds for a romance. Because so because if you're, if you're skimming through it real fast... And you hate, 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 hate. And then all of a sudden in one scene, oh, you're my son, my moon, my starlit sky. You get confused. That's a good point. That is a good point. Moving on to the Snow
2: Village and that tears lean conversation from before. Tears lean keeps getting more and more mysterious
0: because yeah. in this version, Eric says tears lean is a myth. It doesn't exist. It's like, man, that, it existed and thrived like 25 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How, how old is Sorsha?
2: <laughs> <laughs> the third act of this film Starts getting pretty different. They're fleeing Kale's army. And they don't go to a canyon maze. Exterior, mountain, day. Snow whirls around them as they climb. Then, oddly, the mountain becomes warmer and the snow melts away. They reach a slope of dark, vitreous lava. Rizel, Nakma! Nakma! Far away at the top of the mountain looms the ominous castle of Nakmar. The black lava flows away from it like a deadly shadow. Exterior. Cave of the Iborsic. sik Day. Their horses rear up as they approach the mouth of the cave. Rizel waits for them, circling and cawing. Rizel, this way! The cave! They dismount and lead the horses. But the horses panic. Their frightened, neighing voices echo deep in the gloomy cave. And they break away and run off. Willow swallows hard. He and Mad Mardigan follow Rizel inside. Interior. Cave of the Iborcisk. Day. Daylight is soon replaced by the orange glow of molten lava. Willow. Mad Mardigan! I can't stand being enclosed in spaces. Mad Mardigan. Want me to carry Alora? Willow. I'm used to her. How's she doing? Willow wears the papoose on his back. Mad Mardigan looks in at the baby's face. She's doing fine. A lot better than we are, Peck. Willow and Mad Mardigan laugh, which breaks the tension. Then a geyser of steam hisses near them and a bat screeches somewhere and the tension's back. They keep going. Interior, deeper in the cave. Hot liquid drips from the ceiling. Hissing steam bubbles from the floor. They go single file along a ledge over a foaming lava pit. Roselle is squawking ahead in the distance. Matt Mardigan, Willow, this may be a bad time to ask the question, but what if Rizel's wrong? Willow, she can't be wrong. She's a very powerful sorceress. She's a bird, Willow. <laughs> <laughs> That's my fault, not hers. I've got to keep practicing. I'm still in the learning stage. But magic, Mad Mardigan, requires concentration. And Mad Mardigan, watch it. Ah! Mad Mardigan lunges and grabs Willow just as he is about to fall into the lava pit. He hauls him to safety. They gasp with relief. Then they head deeper into the cave. They stop. They hear something. Something strange. Then something moves on the wall. Willow, I hate this. The cave wall comes to life. Down them crawl ugly rock puffers. "'Pillow-sized wall crabs that screech horribly like bats. "'Mad Mardigan fights them off with his sword. "'The rock puffers bloat themselves up, tripling their size. "'Mad Mardigan stabs one, and it hisses like an untied balloon. "'Suddenly, distant hoofbeats thunder and echo. "'Mad Mardigan flashes his sword and turns around, "'ready to defend Willow and the baby against the army. "'Mad Mardigan, go, Willow, run, run!' "'Willow listens as the hoofbeats get louder and louder,' At last, he turns and runs deeper into the cave. Mad Madmartigan waits. The Nokmar soldiers, now increased to eighty, come charging down the cave. Kale rides in the lead, alongside the turncoat Cuth. This guy was like seen on the way out of the village, who like betrays them and basically tells the Nokmar soldiers where they're going. As they gallop along the ledge, Cuth makes the mistake of crowding Kale, who angrily elbows him, horse and all, into the boiling pit. The army tramples over the rock puffers, which explode underfoot. Mad Mardigan braces himself as they stampede toward him, but suddenly the horsemen all screech their horses to a halt. The horses rear back and away. Mad Mardigan stands there, wondering, then suddenly a shadow looms behind him. He turns. The Eborcisk roars and the cave shakes and thunders. It's an enormous two-headed monster that doesn't like visitors which is interesting about that description. Monster, not dragon, which is a comparison that's not made in the Chris Claremont novels, but the notion of a dragon is not applied to the Ebersisk at all. Dragons are something unique, very powerful, very unlike what the Ebersisk is, but the Ebersisk is often referred to in other things as a dragon because it is dragon-esque. Mad Martigan. Willow. Willow. He looks around frantically. Willow is nowhere to be seen. Then the baby cries out. Mad Mardigan sees them cowering behind a rock. He runs toward them. The Ebersisk exhales flames over his head. Kale, go after them! Soldiers obey Kale and go after Mad Martigan. He fights them, hacking down a few, while a few others are incinerated by the Ebersisk. Sorsha's horse rears as she watches Mad Martigan battle for his life. Archers shoot arrows, which pierce the Ebersisk and makes it even angrier. Willow digs one of his magic acorns out of his pocket. A head of the Ebersisk gnashes at Mad Martigan. Mad Martigan looks to Willow for help. Mad Mardigan, hurry, Willow, throw it. Willow winds up and throws with all his might. The Ebersisk blasts a flame, which startles Willow, wrecking his aim. Mad Mardigan's eyes pop open and he ducks as the acorn whistles by his ear. The acorn bounces off a rock and flies back, trickles along the ground, and hits a Nokmar soldier who is already dead. The soldier's body turns to stone. Rizel, Look out! One of the Ebersisk's head lunges towards the baby. Rizel dives like a rocket and attacks the monster's eye as Willow whisks the baby away. Then Mad Mardigan leaps up on the Ebersisk. He climbs up over its flaming head and drives his sword down through its skull. The Ebersisk howls horribly. Its wounded head falls down. Mad Mardigan topples down its back and leaps onto a horse, knocking its rider off all in one swashbuckling move, scooping Willow and the baby up onto the back of the horse and galloping away, Kale after them. But as his horsemen charge forward, the Ebersisk falls to its knees, half dead. The surviving head blasts the soldiers with fire. They rear back on their horses and continue to battle the monster with arrows and spears. And then the heroes ride out of the cave to the Field of Tears Lane, as we see in the film.
0: Almost like a Fred Flintstone moment there, sliding down the Ebersisk. Ha ha ha
2: yeah, <laughs> between this scene and the troll scene on the bridge, you get what becomes the Lean battle.
0: Yeah, they could just obviously combined the two. Made
2: two awkward diversions into one more much, streamlined yeah. sequence. Yeah. And I mean, good grief! Like the rock puffers, holy crap! So we have a, we have a picture of them. They're these like really
0: scary looking bugs. They're kind of like uh, coconut crabs.
2: Yeah, kind of. Yeah.
0: Except, and, like, they look like stone or something. It's almost like a Pokemon, now I think about it. They are like a... Yeah, they're they're, they're balloon stone type Pokemon. Yeah. Like a pufferfish crab on land that lives in caves that looks like a rock.
2: Yeah. Lucasfilm, nothing goes to waste. We're totally going to see those things again. Somewhere. somewhere.
0: Yeah, if we haven't already in Star Wars
1: somewhere. Yeah,
2: that we... I mean, Matt, is there, like, an episode of Clone Wars that we should be looking to that has these rock puffers in it?
1: Nothing springs to mind.
2: <laughs> so, untapped... Someday someone's going to be thumbing through, you know, the Lucasfilm pictures. and They're going to be like, oh, man, we got to use these balloon crabs. (laughs) It's weird, like, because the the images of them are very scary and you could do it very compelling. I cannot imagine in 1988 figuring out how to do this shit,
0: which is probably why they didn't even attempt it. Yeah, I'm sure they just because, you know, like Bob would say, they were just writing the story. It wasn't a matter of, you know.
2: Yeah. But what a cool creature idea. Yeah. What a weird, (laughs) unusual thing. It's like it's one of the most unique things in this entire script. And it's only there for a moment. It's not like those could be a problem on their own. Yeah. But then the Ibersisk shows up and you forget about the crabs. The horses trample them. Yeah, yeah. It's so weird. So they get to Tiers Lean. But in this version, Willow has a magic item. He has a philosopher's stone. There's things he can do with it. He hasn't yet transformed Rizal back. He needs to do that. But this presents them with a very interesting situation. In Tirzlin, there's 12 pillars. The knights of the Palisade, the king's bravest warriors, just like all those people who are frozen. There are people trapped in these yeah. pillars, and they can clearly see that these 12 dudes are, like, important. Knights. yeah.
0: Well, they're, they're, like, knights. They're, like, ready to fight.
2: Yeah. So Rizal has Willow use the Philosopher's Stone to release them, and he does.
0: Yeah, he goes one by one. He goes over to them, says the magic words, puts the Philosopher's Stone near them or on them, and they unthaw. And they leap into battle, yeah. and they start defending lean Boy,
2: they are nondescript characters to the max. But yeah.
0: the Siege of Tirislene happens.
2: Sans Trolls, Sans Ebrisisk, it's still a big battle. And in this case, they have a little bit of reinforcement. And Mad Mardigan
0: finds the king's armor. And, and I love how you can see the evolution from this, how it's so different and like seems larger, to the final version where it's like, well, what if... Willow wasn't talented enough to resurrect any of these people or to unthaw them and Mad Mardigan had to fight off this army by himself with whatever's lying around. And that's fucking great. You know, it's, yeah. it's it's so good. So, like, him going through, looking at the swords and stuff, he, and then he sees the... He Kevin McAllister's it, you know? Like. Yeah, but it's so good. <laughs> and it shows, like, how talented he is. Where he's like, I'll win this war for you. He fucking could, you know? Like, by himself, in this castle, with Willow kind of not doing much, except for looking after the baby, he, like, holds off Nokmar's soldiers. So it's, it's so much more impressive in the film than just... I mean, I guess it's supposed to be impressive that Willow's learning the magic and he's able to like use it to help in the battle. But they're clearly going for something different in the final film. I really love seeing this version and seeing like what it could be versus what it became. It makes me love what it became even more.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is such an exciting journey through the process of building a film and all the different phases it goes through and how yeah. it becomes this thing that we know and love. Where now. you're like,
0: okay, well, we got to build a set. We have to build the props that turn into a special effect that turn into... People that we have to pay for the day as actors who are trained stuntmen who are also part of a special effect, you know, that are being thought out and ultimately King Kale steals the baby away just like we'd see in the film eventually anyway. Or we don't pay the extra people, we don't hire the extra stuntmen, we don't do the extra special effect, and Val Kilmer does all this by himself. Yeah,
2: and we don't build a cave.
0: We don't do any of that. It's it, but it, it made it better. Yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't just budgetary reasons in mind. I'm sure they were like, "Ah, eh, it could work better if we pull it together." Whatever it, the reason. It does
2: work better. This is a clunkier script. It's an early draft and and it shows, but like the the seeing the maturation of Willow is really exciting. Honestly, I never thought we'd get to this point. I never yeah. thought we'd have the opportunity to to see it in this gestational period, and it's very fascinating. So when uh the knockmore battle does happen, relatively the same, though with some gu- more guys on Willow's team, and he Willow gets ambushed by the Nokmar soldiers. As the baby gets taken. The surprise troops Eric leads. Oh, that's a lot more than before. He's got two hundred soldiers with him. Yeah. Kale has the baby and retreats with only a few horsemen left. And what follows is a batshit crazy sequence, the likes of which I don't think we've seen in any Lucasfilm thing. This is a chase on horseback up the mountainside to Knockmar through all this like you know lava terrain. Arrows flying, people dying, and by the time they get to the gate, there's only two soldiers behind Kale. He jumps onto a, a rising drawbridge, and the others tumble in the moon. Yeah,
0: it does make a big note of that. It is like a full-on battle that you see people get whittled away one by one until there's literally a handful left, which I can't and even think of on a movie. on the move. Yeah, on well, the move, running up the side of a mountain. And I really can't think of another movie that did that either. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you want to compare, like in the Hobbit movie, when they're going down the river and the barrels— and you're seeing all the orcs get killed off, but it's it's different. It's not the same. And mm-hmm. this sounds way more brutal and actiony as opposed to like the whimsical humor of whatever that sequence was trying to accomplish.
2: Yeah. When we get to Nokmar, that is the second time we've ever seen Bavmorda. There are no. Was as- it really? There are no asides in Nokmar. There's no catch ups with like.
0: So we we saw her in the very beginning. Yeah. What? And then yeah, this is where she slaps Kale, and it's just like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, you're right. Wow, she just sort of bookends the movie. Yeah, exactly.
2: And then the movie happens basically the same. It happens the same as in the young adult version. Mm-hmm. The only other weird eccentricity to it is that... That King Kale's a big cat man. <laughs> well, sure, yeah. And Willow has the philosopher's stone yeah. that he uses to But he uses it health. just as much a, a, in
0: exactly. the same fashion as the as the wand. Yeah.
2: He gets to the end. Finn Rizel says, Willow, you're going to be a great sorcerer. Here's a book. When Willow, this book that was given to Willow, when Willow gets back to the Nelwyn village, weirdly... He gives the book to the High Aldwin. I
0: don't know what to make of that. I don't know how to read. <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't know what else he'd give That's to true. Him. He, has yeah. ne- he has
2: never been asked to read anything. So yeah. Yeah, it's, maybe,
0: could you please tell me a bedtime story. <laughs> what does this book say? I didn't want to say anything in front of Roselle. I want to impress her. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: that's it. That's our crazy little journey
0: we've uncovered multiple versions of this story that that all had these weird little differences that overall informed how the process worked. Like, how do you go from the idea and how it evolved over time with different drafts of the screenplay, which informed the novel, then the young adult novel, and then the source book. And it's like, we can start to see where it all kind of splintered from. And I remember we were always talking about, like, what is the Willow story Bible, like the world Bible? Yeah. It seems more and more like it was the second draft screenplay. Like, the second draft screenplay was the starting point for all of these other little side things, which is really interesting when you, when you think about it like that. Like, a document that was never meant to be a world-building Bible, but is handed to, like, 12 different people, and everybody took it and ran with it. I can't think of another thing like that.
2: Yeah, I mean, not even Star Wars. Because, like, yeah, you have the novelizations that are made from earlier drafts and so on, but not that early not Mm -hmm. by that much and when it got to the time that greg kostikian the guy who did the star wars rpg which was a very defining moment for the expanded universe the Mm -hmm. same guy who co-wrote the willow source book that's a whole different story you know we got to get into we're going to be speaking to alan varney and hopefully greg kostikian as well in the near future on willow watch but you know when he was doing star wars he was basing it off the films that were already out
0: yeah in this case yeah it was based off of a of a draft of a script of a film that wasn't out yet It's just this crazy look inside the machine that was Lucasfilm at the time and how a movie goes from concept to pre-production to production to the final product. Yeah,
2: it's amazing. What a unique scenario Willow has offered us to peer inside the machinations of a blockbuster franchise being built that didn't end up
0: becoming one, but it has all of the materials spinning out of it to let us see... That's like, like how, you, how you would do it. Yeah. If you were at that time in that place and you were going to make a large movie, this is how you would go about doing it.
2: And in terms of like the uh, archivist historian in me and fan of Lucasfilm stuff from this era. And I mean, filmmaking
0: in general. I was
2: subscribed to the Lucasfilm fan club as a child. Yeah. You know, like this is kind of crazy. It's like getting a real sense of how it happened behind the scenes
0: in a very profound way like all the way behind the scenes i do feel very lucky yeah and and i'm not just saying that like i do feel very lucky that we have had a chance to like read these things been able to compare these things and to get this broader sense of like what it was like to be working at lucasfilm at the time i'll even say like as a writer myself when bob was doing the interview which if you haven't listened to you gotta go listen to it when i remember one of the pieces of advice that he said that george gave him was something along the lines of like oh you know as a writer you'll write the right things but sometimes it's in the wrong order yeah meaning like take that scene and flip the dialogue around and not only do we know that george lucas did that with star wars a new hope like with different cuts of the film from like special edition to original theatrical cut and bob talked about doing that for the willow screenplay but i find myself looking at my own work and doing that and finding that it fucking works right yeah (laughs) like and i never would have i've never heard that advice anywhere else and maybe it's because i live in a bubble (laughs) like maybe it's a common piece of advice you read a lot
2: of filmic stuff i do but
0: i i don't recall i really don't recall reading anywhere it's usually like the the most common advice i would read is like you know if if in your gut you're feeling it's not working cut it out i've yet to hear somebody say you know what just for funsies flip that scene backwards and see if it works and sometimes it does you know yeah that's crazy and awesome so thank the maker yeah (laughs) (laughs) and
2: thank you for tuning into this episode of willow watch if you have any thoughts on this please do let us know if you somehow have access to different versions of the scripts if you're one of those big money folks buying shit from prop store london let us have a peek at the storyboards and other things
0: that were sold on there for big money we didn't have or take pictures with your fancy scanner or phone and send it over that's fine yeah
2: that's all good it's all good but reach out and if you're a Willow fan, if Willow's touched your life somehow, hey, you know, we're kind of documenting the whole process of Willow and everything Willow was here. And that is part of it. What Willow means to you is part of it. So if you got a Willow story to share with us, reach out. Yeah, please. We'll see you in a couple of weeks with a regularly scheduled episode of State of the Empire looking for news in Alderaan places as usual. But hey. As we've proven in this episode, Alderaan places are sometimes where the deepest, darkest secrets and answers lie. <laughs> you can find us at Lucasfilm Pod on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Cap Blackard.
0: I'm at Doug V as in Vader Banks. <laughs>
1: and I am at Matthew Spill.
2: Willow Watch is a production of the Consequence Podcast Network. Check out our expanding roster of music, film, and television podcast programming at ConsequenceofSound.net. This show is recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida at Nerdy Show Studios, home of the Nerdy Show Network, geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. Discover more at nerdyshow.com. Our theme song, Maximum Rebo, was written and performed by Zantilla. Find more awesome tracks at zantilla.bandcamp.com. Special thanks to our Bothan Pals and the Star Wars Spoilers Facebook group, the Nerdy Show Network Patreon backers, and Sorsha. Your arc may have been cut short in the final film, but not in our hearts. You're not a damsel or a prize to be won. You're a hardworking warrior woman caught up in the nightmare your overbearing mom made for you. But when you get a taste of kindness, goodness, affection, the things in life worth fighting for, you take it. And you say, fuck you, goth mom, I'm fighting for love now.